loaded. Take a look. Jeremiah 23. While we're looking for it, let me just take the time to thank Bud LeCompte for blessing us on Wednesday night. Uh, Bud told a great story that I shall never forget, and he was willing to share it with the group. Thank you, buddy, for doing that. I I uh, was blessed, except I should not have stood so close to you. You made me look small. Of course, third graders make me look small, so therefore. Okay, have you found it, Jeremiah 23? Look at this. Woe to the shepherds uh, who are destroying and scattering the sheep. A shepherd's not supposed to do that, is he? Yeah. So this is, I mean, a shepherd's supposed to care for the sheep, provide, protect. So right at the outset, we're finding out whoever these shepherds are, then, then they don't get it right. Uh, they're destroying and scattering the sheep. Who do you think the shepherds here is a reference to? It's a little hard for, uh, question to ask because you have to see the whole context. But take a stab at it right now. It won't hurt to be wrong. Uh, what did you say, Charlie? Okay, okay, so Charlie says pastors, or prophets, clergy. Good. You are all... Um, how shall I say, um, wrong? Yeah, that's it. Tom? Priests and Levites. Tom joins the crowd of those who are in error. Good. Yes, ma'am. The unrighteous rulers of Judah. It must have said that on the side of your Bible. That's okay. That's correct. This you will see in just a second. Now listen, you're all right. Because shepherds is variously used. It could be political leaders. It could be religious leaders. Here at the outset, I think you'll see it's political leaders. Those in the lead politically in Israel. And they're in the lead because God put them there. Hence, the text says, you're destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Government is a God-ordained institution authorized for the protection of the citizenry and for its well-being. It is to establish and enforce laws for the protection and well-being of the citizenry. It's authorized by God to so do. When government doesn't, God says, woe to you. And that's what's happening here. Therefore, verse 2, thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my people, you've scattered my flock and driven them away. You've not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. In essence, God is saying, uh, you have not taken care of the people. I assure you, therefore, I will take care of you. Now, this passage has as its context ancient Israel, but applies to government today. So, folks, I didn't say be at ease. It's a day of dis-ease, for sure. On the other hand, don't get too worried about stuff, because all political leaders must give account to Almighty God. So just, just relax just a tad bit. Everyone has to give an account to God. You have not attended to them, 
as you ought to have, that is the constituency allotted to your charge, but I will attend to you. This is God's statement, not with reference to a particular uh, a party or anything like that, just worldwide. We're talking about the international scheme historically. God holds human government accountable. So then it says, verse 3, Then I myself, then. See that word, then? It's a time indicator. Then means future time, does it not? Then means we're being moved from the past and even beyond Jeremiah's present into some time after Jeremiah. Now, we can debate how far after Jeremiah, but right now I want you to notice that the word then is carrying us into a day beyond this particular text and context. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. Then at a future day yet to have arrived from Jeremiah's perspective, then God himself will assume the role of good shepherd because the governmental leaders appointed to have failed. They have not been good shepherds, in this case specifically with, repre with reference to ancient Israel, God's covenant people. Therefore, God says, but there will then be a time when I myself will be their shepherd. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. Now, this is interesting. God is pronouncing a woe upon the political leaders who have scattered Israel. And yet here we read that it was God who scattered Israel. Israel around. So why is God holding them responsible for something he did? Now notice how God works. Israel has sinned. God says he's going to judge them. He uses, in this case, the Babylonians as his agent of judgment. But the Babylonians are still responsible. This is an example of the sheer and utter sovereignty of God. He can use a person or a people to judge and correct another person or people, even if the instrument he uses is uncooperative. So he can use any political regime, good or bad, to accomplish his purposes. And that political regime is no less responsible for its wrongdoing. This is an example of just how sovereign your God is if you know him personally. And so it says in Romans 8, God can use all things for the good. He can even use evil dictators for good. Yet the evil dictator is still responsible for his evil. The evil dictator cannot say, yeah, but God, you made use of my evil. <laughs> no, no, no. So here you see, though God as a judgment, did the scattering of Israel amongst the nations. He did the scattering through other nations who are still responsible for the scattering. So then, in this future day, God himself will act as shepherd to this remnant of his flock. 
And he will bring them back from all the countries where he has driven them. In fact, he will bring them back to their pasture. Now I want to ask you a question. Who is the flock uh, this verse is speaking of? Israel. And if that's the case, where is their pasture? I mean, it's a metaphor, agricultural metaphor of a shepherd, a flock, a pasture. If God says, I'm going to bring my flock in that day back to their pasture, it presumes they're going to be out of their pasture and then brought back to it. What is the pasture? Israel. And you can find this out by going way back to the first book of the Bible where God says to Abram, I'm going to give this land to your people. It's land. It's pasture land. Because of sin, Israel was exiled from it. Because of God's mercy, they'll be brought back to it. How do I know it? It says so right there. Then I myself will gather the remnant of the flock out of how many countries? All the countries. So this is speaking of a day when God will regather uh, the Jews from not one country, but from many countries in which they have been dispersed. And God will bring them back to their pasture or their land. So I ask you this question. Has this happened? Okay, this is great. I love this. This happened in the first class too. And we had like a major, it was a fight and people voted on uh, splitting the class and and so on. And so it was just really, it was just a unbelievable. Okay, so some say yes, uh, this has been fulfilled and some say no, it hasn't. And so let me just mention to you, you're right, uh, both of you. And now let's move on. No, no. Here's what I mean. It has already been fulfilled in a sense in May of 1948. In May of 1948, uh, uh, the uh, modern state of Israel was reestablished remarkably after 3,000 years of dispersion. In fact, historians with no particular interest in Christian principles indicate this is one of the most remarkable events in human history, that a people group would be dispersed out of its land for 3,000 years, scattered amongst the nations, different languages and all the rest, absorbed by all these other nations, and yet regathered so as to reestablish their own country in 1948. They find it to be remarkable. Well, it came about through evil. In fact, it came about through the Holocaust. So once again... Uh, is the Nazi regime, Adolf Hitler, are they accountable to God? Said, of course. And yet God did allow it to happen. He did. And look how God used evil. Now, Hitler and the others can't stand up before God and say, you made good use of our atrocities. Absolutely not. They are accountable, but God could make use even of the evil of evildoers. How did he do it? Well, the sympathy of the world was aroused after the Holocaust and so this interest in the uh, in a homeland for the Jews was conjured up. Britain at the time was not pro-Israel at all. Uh, Britain was fairly uh, anti-Semitic, believe it or not, Great Britain. And they were in control of what we now know to be the modern state of Israel. It was called the British Mandate. Um, in fact, you may be surprised to know that the nations of the world at that time when they were trying to figure out what to do with these Jews thought about settling them in Uganda. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if you knew that. Interesting, Uganda. 
I'll tell you why. Because the thinkers of the world were not coming to conclusions based upon biblical discernment whatsoever. They weren't consulting the covenant God made with Abram and all this other kind of stuff. They were just thinking about, we've got to get rid of these Jews. We've got to do something with them. How about Uganda? Uh, well, it didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because God is sovereign. And because God said what he said in verse 3. <laughs> so they ended up in May of 1948 in the modern state of Israel. Jews from all over, Russian Jews. Jews from Yemen, Jews from New York. I mean, all over the place. It's absolutely remarkable. So those of you who said, yes, verse 3 has been fulfilled, are correct in that sense. Those of you who said, no, <laughs> did you get it right, Billy? Oh, you did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> those of you who said it has not yet been fulfilled are, are also correct, and I'll tell you why. When you read about prophetic things in, or future things in the Bible, they have many senses. One is an immediate historical context. The immediate historical context is Babylon is coming, burning down Jerusalem, taking the Jews captive into Babylon. The immediate historical context is that 70 years later, God will bring them back into their land. But biblical prophecy doesn't only have an immediate context, it also has a far-reaching context. Always, always, always. So you have to see it that way. So another far-reaching conquest, is, it goes way beyond the Babylonians, as you'll see in the next two verses for sure. It goes beyond it. Now I think one such context was May of 1948, but even that is not the ultimate fulfillment of this verse because the Jews who are in the land of Israel today, are in the land of Israel in unbelief. They have not been regathered as a faithful remnant. They're regathered as an unfaithful, Messiah-rejecting, privileged, yet disobedient people group. They are only in the land by the mercy of God. So in that sense... The regathering of Israel in 1948 is not the ultimate fulfillment of this particular prophecy, which uses the term remnant of the flock. Now, the remnant concept is hugely important in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, the term is used 19 times, but in the other prophets, Isaiah and so on, many, many more times. The remnant means... In spite of faithless Israel, God has always preserved in every generation some who have believed on him at the risk of a bit of uh, arrogance, and I don't mean it. I'm one, not by any merit whatsoever. Why is the remnant important? It's because it's through the remnant in the end times that God will fulfill all of his promises. So a Jew is not saved just because he's a Jew. A Jew is saved the same way anyone is saved, by sheer and utter faith in the Lord Jesus. There are no exceptions to the rule. That's the way it is. But all these promises, the promisor made with unfaithful Israel, will be fulfilled because he's faithful through the remnant, through the remnant. That's why Paul could say in Romans 11, has God rejected his people? You know what he said? May it never be. I'm a Jew. See, he's saying I'm part of the remnant way back in Romans 
11. So this is hugely important. So there'll be a time when God will regather the remnant into the land in belief. We've not seen that just yet. So now this goes on, verse 4. And here's what I want to tell you. I think this has this reaches far into the future, way beyond Jeremiah's day and even beyond ours. Verse 4. I will also raise up shepherds over them, and they will tend them. They'll not be afraid any longer, nor be terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Has that happened? No way. In fact, you can go to Israel today, and this idea, shepherds who will tend them so that they won't be afraid any longer, nor be terrified... It is a siege mentality in Israel today. Now, life goes on, but life goes on with civilians with rifles strapped over their shoulders, ready to get their children into underground fallout shelters. No, there's plenty of terror in the land. There are still rockets which are um, unleashed (laughs) from Israel's neighbors (laughs) into residential areas. No, this has not yet been fulfilled. And the next verse really tells me it's not yet been fulfilled. Look, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Remember last week we spoke about how the kingly line was interfered with by God because the kingly line of Israel was ungodly. But there will come a day when God will have a king on the throne of an entirely different kind. He's referred to as the righteous branch. He will reign as king, act wisely, do justice and righteousness in the land. Who do you think that king is? King Jesus. But wait a second. This kind of thing has not yet happened. King Jesus came the first time. And he said to Israel, I will be your king. And Israel said, thank you, but no thank you. They said, you don't look like the king of Israel and our savior. You can't even save yourself. So he was crucified and rejected and entombed and rose up. So that the second time he comes, this will be fulfilled. And that hasn't taken place yet. What has to happen? The Lord Jesus comes again for us. It's called the rapture of the church. He does not come to earth at the rapture. We meet him in the air and the scriptures say, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So the next time he comes for his church and then after that he'll come back with his church. When will that take place? After a period of extraordinary tribulation. Called by some the Great Tribulation. A period of seven years of horrific outpouring of the wrath of God on earth. During which time millions suffered the hands of Antichrist and perish under his regime. And there would be no hope for any to survive but for the return of the Lord Jesus at the end of the tribulation to with us to establish his earthly reign 
from Jerusalem for 1,000 years, which means that period of time is called the millennium. Now, it's during the millennium when the remnant of Israel will see the fulfillment of all of God's promises to her. It cannot, it has not taken place yet. It requires the Lord's second coming and the establishment of his millennial reign. And because that is in advance of Jeremiah's time and in advance of ours, this, in my opinion, has not yet fully been fulfilled just yet. But it will. The point is, God has a future for Israel. Why? Because he promised a future to Israel. Know why that's good news for you who are not tied to Israel? God has a future for you because he has promised it. All through the Bible, the hope of salvation. It will be fulfilled. Now this term, uh, the righteous branch, is messianic. Messianic, meaning pertaining to the Messiah. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, you see the same terminology, the branch. Now, a branch is just an, you know, a tree kind of a thing. But when you look to the context, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the reference to the branch is a reference to the coming Messiah. Now, in case you're doubtful about this being the Lord Jesus, take a look at verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Folks, has that happened yet? No. Listen. Are Jews going to be saved because they are Jewish? No. Everyone is saved because they accept the Savior. There's no other way. Jesus said this. I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's pretty simple. I'm so glad he made it simple because it's so critical we get that right. Okay. So, so, but there will come a day, Judah will be saved. When is that? Again, after Jeremiah's day, after our day, we're out of here. We're raptured. What ensues is a horrific outpouring of God's wrath on earth, allowing for the regime of an anti Christian character, the anti-Messiah, the Antichrist, who promises peace, but then ushers in terrible oppression, particularly with regard to the Jewish people, a time of great, horrific persecution uh, of the Jews, a time where 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe will go through the land doing evangelism and all be martyred, slaughtered for the faith. And at the end of that, Romans 11 tells us all Israel, all Judah will be saved. What does that mean? Every Jew who comes through the tribulation will look upon him whom they have pierced and acknowledge him as their Savior. You see? So that day is going to come. In his days, the day of Messiah, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. Is she dwelling securely now though she's in the land? Are you kidding me? And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Jewish people do not refer to Messiah Jesus this way now. 
They refer to him sometimes as a good teacher only. Sometimes they call him a rabbi who started a movement that failed. Sometimes they say he had a Messiah complex. He was deluded, but surely was not the Messiah. On and on and on. But only the remnant now and all those Jews who come through the tribulation then will refer to him, the righteous branch, as the Lord, our righteousness. What do people think now about righteousness? They say our good deeds are the basis of our righteousness with God. Our denomination, our church membership, our humanitarian projects, our care for the environment, all of this is our righteousness, which gives us right standing with God. No. In that day, it will be recognized that the source of our right standing with God is the Lord who is our righteousness. That has not yet happened, not in Israel, not on a worldwide basis. Buckle up. It is going to happen. It will take place. The best is yet to come. It's just going to get worse before it gets better. So just buckle up. That's the way it is. Now days are coming, verse 7. God says, they won't, they, Israel, won't any longer says, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt. Folks, in my tradition as a Jewish guy, in Judaism, the exodus from Egypt is like the biggest deal. We have a whole thing, you know, Passover, you know, when the angel of death passed over. I mean, exodus, the fact that God delivered us is just a huge deal. We sing praises, we write songs, we read scripture. It's like a huge deal. But there will come a day in that day when that deliverance of God will pale in comparison to another one. Here it is. But, they won't say that, verse 7, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the, the, the descendants of the household of Israel from the Northland and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. The deliverance from Egypt, the Exodus, which all my people rejoice in as the key historical event in our history, will give way to a more significant deliverance, which is yet to happen, when God will deliver dispersed Jews from around the world to bring them back not just to the secular state of Israel, which exists today, but to a holy place ruled over by the branch who sits on David's throne, whose name is the Lord, is our righteousness. That has not yet happened. That is going to happen. And all the dividing lines of the nations are forming, even now, so as to lead up to this unfolding of the return of the Lord Jesus, the righteous King. Now verse 9 and on. Talks now about Israel's bad prophets. The first verses were an indictment about Israel's politicians and now her religious leaders, because all those a lot are given authority to lead out politically, religiously, must give an account to God. 
The first verses are an indictment of those shepherds who led Israel wrongly. Now, verse 9 and on are religious leaders. As for the prophets, my heart is broken. Do you know that's Jeremiah speaking right there? Jeremiah is saying, my heart is broken. My bones tremble. I become like a drunk, even like someone overcome with wine. Why? Because of the Lord and his words. He was someone entrusted with God's words as a prophet to deliver. But he saw how false prophets were distorting God's word and even ignoring God's word. And that so affected him. He said, I'm just, I'm, I'm shaken as if I was drunk. He said, the land is full of adulterers, literally, yes, but also spiritually. And the land mourns because of the curse. Pastures have dried up. By the way, um, the reason for the environmental problems we have today <laughs> have to do with the pollution that resides in us. Pollution of the land is a, f is a result of the pollution in us. So to skip the pollution in us to try to clean up the land is another of man's attempts to avoid confession of sin and turning to the Savior. So instead of saying the Lord is our righteousness, we say environmental awareness is our righteousness. So the religion of the day is green, not red blood of Messiah. Green, not Father God, Mother Earth. It's interesting kind of a thing. I didn't say don't take be good stewards of stuff. Turn out the lights if you're not in the room. Sure, common sense. But you ain't cleaning up the real corruption by turning out the lights. The real corruption requires the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus who is our righteousness. It's idolatry. Mother Earth stuff, that's idolatry. Okay, so anyway, it says, verse 11, both prophet and priest are polluted. Uh, verse 13, prophets in Samaria committed an offensive thing. Verse 14, prophets of Jerusalem, a horrible thing. Um, verse 16, therefore God says, don't listen to them. They're leading you into futility. You know what they do? They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of God. They make up stuff. I had a dream. I had a vision. God told me to tell you, you are to sell all your possessions and move to San Francisco, California, whatever. <laughs> Could God speak that way? Sure. Absolutely. But you better check it out. Why? Because you, can't, you don't have anything to objectively verif verify those dreams and visions and subjective things. Sure, God can speak through a dream or vision. You better check it out. You know what I find Christians do today? They don't check it out. If some guy on TV or some woman in some meeting, I don't know, whatever the deal is, says, God spoke to me and he told me to tell the church today. How do I know where she got that, where he got that? The only reason I know when someone speaks that they got it from God is if it's from the Word of God. Do you know what God's saying? Israel lived in the day of subjective revelation. People were talking about God told me this, God told me that, and God said, where'd they get that? 
They didn't get it from me. By the way, I think we're in that day today. I mean, there's a whole TV, you know, this whole so-called Christian TV stuff. <laughs> if you listen to it, oh, my goodness. <sighs> it's about men and women just kind of making up stuff as they go along. <sighs> I wish someone would say, today we're in First Timothy chapter 2. Tell me what it says. Dreams, visions, this and that. Could I tell you something? They weren't even that prevalent in this day before the completion of the Bible. They're even less prevalent today now that we have the completed Bible. Why do you have to make recourse to some guy's subjective announcement of his guidance for your life when you have 66 books of inspired and errant scripture to consult? Listen to me. A young gal used to go to church here, married some guy. It's it's a not working out. It's really a bad deal. Um, she told me she just felt that God told her to marry him. No counsel, no consultation, no searching the scriptures, no application of biblical principles, just this impression. I had this impression. <sighs> Impressions about marriage? Impressions about an irreversible decision in your life? Impressions when you have hardcore biblical principles? <gasps> and then you consult people who, you know, God spoke to me. <laughs> they are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Do you know where I got that, what I just told you? Right there. Jeremiah 23, verse 16. I didn't come in here and say on the way in today, I had this hunch, this intuition, this impression that everyone here ought to... Would. Come on. Could that be? Yeah. But you better check it out. Do you know in ancient Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, dreams were lauded as the highest source of divine inspiration, but not in ancient Israel. In ancient Israel, they didn't deny that God could speak through dreams, but they were much more cautious about them before they simply accepted it because someone told the dream. And today on so-called Christian TV, what a general waste of time when you have the Word of God that you could be reading. Well, anyway, God doesn't like these uh, people. You know, verse 18, who has stood in the counsel of the Lord that he should see and hear his word? You know what he's saying? They don't study. They don't draw near to me. I didn't tell them this. They're not standing in my counsel. They're making up stuff as they go along. That's what it says. And then it goes on. Here, verse 21, I didn't send these prophets, but they ran. What do you mean? They ran to their ministry. They made quick haste. <laughs> but God didn't send them. How are they equipped? How are they trained? How are they? It's amazing. I know I've brought this up before, but I, I just do it again because I'm just a hot-headed guy. Folks, how do so many Christians entrust themselves uh, for teachers and preachers who have no formal biblical training? It blows my stinking mind. Before you go to see a doctor, you consult friends to get a recommendation. 
oh, he's done so many of these surgeries, and he went to Baylor College, and he done this, and okay, good. You do that to find the right dentist. But when it comes to matters of the soul, any Tom, Dick, or Mary with no training, they're just, they're just exuberant, they're dramatic, they're attractive, they're whatever the thing is. They tell you what you want to hear. And by the way, that's just what these people did. Look, verse 17. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord has said, you'll have peace. They preach peace and prosperity when God says, I'm sending calamity upon them. And people flock to peace and prosperity preachers like crazy. Why? It's Santa Claus theology. That's why. Give me what I want. Tell me what I want to hear. Doc, got it. You know what God says? They didn't get this from me. I'll tell you what comes from me. Here's the oracle I send. It's an oracle of impending judgment. Get it together. That's what he says. Well, these people said everything's cool. You know, just be positive. Yeah, but God says, they say calamity will not come up upon you. Verse 19, but behold, the storm of the Lord has gone forth in wrath, even a whirling tempest. So God says, I, I didn't send them. And, and then uh, I'm going to skip here a little bit. Keep going. Uh, let's see. Verse 25, I heard what the prophets have said who prophesy falsely in my name saying, I had a dream. I had a dream. <clears throat> anyone could say it everyone is doing it it's called non-verifiable claims of revelation but you're sitting here verifying the revelation uh, I'm speaking about today how are you verifying it your bible is open you're checking me out right here see the bible is a verifiable word if I absolutely destroy it, a, a word, a phrase, a verse of scripture, uh, hands are going to go up. Thank God for it. I mean, Charlie McKinley, he'll probably, he'll do something terrible. <laughs> you know, good, good, exactly, good, good. But a non-verifiable form of revelation is God told me to tell you. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. What are you getting excited about that for? You can't verify it. This you can verify. But I'll tell you why people go for that. Because that's pre-digested. You don't have to study. You don't have to think. You don't have to examine. You know what it is? It's a lazy person's approach to God. So, you know, I had a dream. I had a dream. Um, how long, verse 26, is there anything in the hearts of these prophets who prophesy falsehood, even these prophets of the deception of their own heart, who intend to make my people forget my name by their dreams? You want to hear something ironic? One of these TV people can talk to you about a dream or vision involving the Lord Jesus, and it in and of itself can lead you astray from the Lord Jesus. Any false teaching is a distraction from a true understanding of who, who the branch of David is. It's the subtlety of the evil one. You, you see, you're too good a person to let them talk to you about false gods and evil and terrible things. So instead, they, their own heart is deceived, and they'll give you dreams and visions, information, subjective information, 
about spiritual things that is so interesting and alluring to you that distracts you from the slow and steady pursuit of Almighty God through your reading of the scriptures. See how it happens? Now verse 28. I got just, I got a few minutes here and then uh, I'll take, I'll take a Valium. I'm telling you, I'll calm down. Okay, so verse 28, get this. The prophet who has a dream may relate his dream. God says they're going to do it. The guy, the the gal who claims to have a dream, they're going to be sharing it. Go ahead. But let him, there's a contrast here, but let him, a contrast. Someone has a dream, okay, share your dream. Here's the contrast. But let him who has my word, my, possessive pronoun, my word, Let him speak my word in truth. Does Satan speak God's word? Yes, he does. But not in truth. See it? You get these TV preachers, and that's how they dupe you. They use God's word, but not in truth. They don't examine it in context because they can't. They don't have the skills. They don't take the time. They're not diligent. They show no respect for the word of God. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And so you read these books. Oh, my goodness. And they wrench passages of Scripture out of their intended context. And naive people read it and say, well, it's Scripture. Yeah, but Satan uses Scripture. (laughs) It has to be Scripture spoken in truth. It's not just truth. It's truth spoken in truth. You can take aspects of truth and speak it falsely. So that's why God says, here's a contrast. You have two sources of revelation. One is subjective, dreams. The other is objective, my word. And you know what God says? Let me ask you this. What does straw have in common with grain? It's a metaphor. Straw. Are you hungry? Have some straw. Straw has no capacity to nourish you physically, but grain does. Physically. It's a contrast between sources of physical nourishment. To prove a point, there's also contrasting sources of spiritual nourishment. You know what God is saying? All this subjective dream vision, you know, I feel, I sense, I imagine, I heard, I guess, I saw. What? how does it nourish you as much as the clear, powerful, objective word of God? In fact, the next verse says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that shatters a rock. You know what all this subjective stuff does? It has a very temporary fleeting effect. You know what what fire does? It transforms the nature of a thing caught on fire forever. You know what a hammer does? Shatters patterns of behavior irreversibly so that they never come back again. You know what God is saying? The mark of a degraded society spiritually is when they opt for straw as a source of revelation, subjective stuff, instead of the hard Sure, proven, 
tested, infallible, inerrant, timeless word of God, which is like grain. And so I tell you this at the risk of being even more offensive than I have. Christians today read more books outside the Bible about the Bible than they do the Bible. Tell me why. I'll tell you why. Because we're lazy, that's why. If I read someone's devotional booklet, which could be very good, don't misunderstand. You know what I'm doing? I hope this grosses you out. That person chewed on the Word of God, which is bread. He chewed it up. And I'm taking out of his mouth and chewing it again. When I could sup on the milk and meat of the Word of God directly. I didn't say don't read devotional. I didn't say that. I just said don't read them as a substitute. You know what the most important part of a devotional booklet is? The verse of Scripture at the top. And that ought to be enough so that you don't even have time to read what's on the bottom. I don't get it. Why do you want someone's chewed up food spat into your mouth for your chewing when you can chew yourself? I'll tell you why. Because you're a baby. And babies need baby food instead of meat. You know how you get used to meat? Keep chewing, keep chewing, keep chewing. You develop a discernment, an interest, an affinity for the Word of God as you expose yourself to it. Read it, read it, read it. Why don't you read it? You know, I go past certain people's computers. Uh, this will get me in tr- A lot of things will get me in trouble. And you see all these stick'em things on computers. Ladies, and I'm sorry, ladies in particular, just pr- they put stick'em. They're usually motivational things on there. You know what I mean? Motivational little epithets, you know. Uh, when the tough get going, the going gets tough. I don't know. That's a guy thing, but stuff like that. I don't get it. When you can memorize a verse of Scripture and carry it with you, not on your computer, but on your heart and mind throughout the day. Listen, I'm working on this one. And in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. I want to stick some... Zig Ziglar formula for success thing on my, as much as he's wonderful, don't misunderstand. When I have Colossians 2, 9 and 10, the very word of God, which I can memorize and carry with me, fill my mind with it, feast on it. I don't, I don't, what does straw have in common with grain? My fellow Christians, what's up? I told you last week, as someone, many people, Stuart, what do you think about the book the shack. I have to confess ignorance. I haven't read it. So I don't know. I only know well-intentioned Christians have very different opinions about it. Some say it was marvelous and helped me more than ever to understand the love of God. Others say I don't like it. I don't know. But here's my point. Why can't you just read God's love letter? Listen, listen, listen. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness.
That tells me about the love of God. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. I memorized it. I'm not putting a stick in with some football coach's motivational saying on my doggone computer when I have the word of God, which is like a hammer and like fire. I don't have time to read all these books. Why? Because it's such an exhausting venture to chew on the word of God, and that's the point. It's exhausting. It's tough going. Words are hard to pronounce. I have to try to get back to a culture I I cannot relate to because it's 2,000 years old. I have to read very slow. I'm confused by certain things. I'm forced to cry out to God, Oh, God, in the power of your spirit, would you open my eyes so I can understand things? Would you give me understanding? And then one day I see something fresh, new, applicable. It might as well have been spoken to me audibly by God. And I'm hooked. I'm an addict on firsthand experience with the grain of life rather than its straw. And I I continue not to understand all things, but I remember a verse, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And then I realize, oh, God, you're going to only show me what you want me to do now. You're not going to show me everything because I could never understand everything all at once. So, God, you're the key, not my IQ. You're the key to understanding Scripture. So then you read, who's it speaking of? What is it speaking about? How does it apply to me? But it's so much easier to read someone's devotional guide on it. It's quick and shallow, and shallow Christians are developed. And so the writer of Hebrews says, though by now you ought to be ready for meat. You're not. You can only handle milk. Babies take in milk. Growing adults, meat, meat, meat. But today on Christians, Christian TV, oh, my goodness. It's pablum, pablum, pablum. There is no substance to it. It's words that tickle Ears. It's report of all kinds of supernatural manifestations of God that are not verified. They're just declared, and naive listeners rejoice over non-verifiable reports. God is raising people from the dead. He could. He has. He can do anything he wants. I'm not denying it. I need verification before I jump up and down and say hallelujah. Hallelujah over what? A report by someone I don't trust? If all these miracles were happening, as you see regularly on Christian TV, the entire medical community would be writing it up in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Doggone it. Why aren't these miracle workers down there at MD Anderson? Doggone it. Stop being so taken in by dreams and imagine. But God's, they didn't stand in my council. They didn't stand in my council. They didn't get it from me. They're just telling people what they want to hear. Why straw when we have grain? I better stop. 
I got to collect myself. We got to do this again. Hey, do me a favor. Don't warn the class coming in. Let them think it's going to be like fun. Folks, folks, here's the deal. We have a good shepherd and there's no one like him. And where is flock? There's no one like us. A saved people. Wow. And we need food. And the good shepherd offers it. And we're looking elsewhere for fast food. Fast food makes you sick. It's quick. It's fast. It's easily digestible. It's easily eliminated. It doesn't stick. I'm getting a little graphic. <laughs> the Word of God is like a fire and like a hammer. Read it. Study it. Be a student of it. It's not too late. Churches are filled with Christians who've gone to church all their lives who have the most infantile personal experience in the Word of God. I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Do you know the Bible refers to the Lord Jesus as the Word of God? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if you want to know the enfleshed Word, you read and study and live by the written Word. See? There's no shortcuts. You don't read about the written Word. You read the written Word. Lord Jesus, may it be true of us that we would be a growing, maturing flock you, of course, being the good shepherd. Would you create in us a hunger, little by little, for your word of God? Jeremiah said, thy words were found, and I ate them. And thy words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I have been called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. I think as we chew, sup at your table, bread of life, as we read words of life. I think we'll develop more of a taste for it. Please increase our appetite for it, particularly in this very challenging day in which we live. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, God bless you folks. Have fun reading.